Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I want to thank you all for attending chapel this morning because today we're all pleased to welcome our very special guest speaker, Reverend Sintis Beatties. He currently serves as the director of multi-ethnic ministries for the Westland Church. And before his time at headquarters, he served as the director of African-American affairs and multicultural services in Guilford College in Greensboro, North Carolina. After sensing his call to the ministry, he started serving as the youth pastor at Genesis Baptist Church, also located in Greensboro, North Carolina. He then moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where he started serving as the high school and faith formation pastor at Kentwood Community Church. This summer, I had the wonderful opportunity to not only work with him at headquarters, but to also be mentored by him. He and his wife, Nicole, have four kids, Tasia, Josiah, Serenity, and Sarah. During his free times, he loves to watch movies. Some of his favorite movies are Coming to America, Love and Basketball, and Ladies, The Notebook. <laughs> so without further ado, I ask that you please give him your full attention and please help me in welcoming to the stage, Reverend Sintis Beatty. Appreciate you, man. Oh, man, good morning. Come on, you can do better than that. Good morning. Man, I didn't know he was going to read my mail about the notebook. Man, brought a tear to my eye from the very beginning. Hey, it's good to be... Um, Good to be with you. I'm really excited about the opportunity to share in this context here at IWU. Uh, this campus, this university has a very special place in my heart. And um, I just want to give a quick shout out to all the Grand Rapids folks, the KCCers in the house. Just, I love you. I miss you guys. Good to see you. But uh, hey, I want to get started by just uh, kind of making you a little uncomfortable. Is that all right? Um, and, and, and what I want to do is just kind of do a, a, a quick snap judgment. I want you to kind of uh, judge what you think is true uh, of me, all right? So if, if I were to bring up students, I could do that, but uh, because of time, I'll just do me. So I'm going to give you three options, and I'm going to let you raise your hands, and you decide which one of these you think is true. Is that right? Can we do that? It's a little crowd participation. Um, so full ride to West Point for football, to North Carolina Tar Heels for baseball, or to Clemson for basketball? Which do you think is true? How many of you say West Point football? Okay. How many of you say Tar Heels baseball? Okay. Not very many of you. Okay. Maybe I'm not that. Yeah. And how many of you say Clemson basketball? Interesting, interesting. It was the first one. It was West Point football. Full ride. Didn't take it, but got a full ride. <laughs> Second one, favorite food. Do you think my favorite food is soul food? Do you think my favorite food is Italian? Do you think my favorite food is Thai? Okay, let's start. Soul food. You think my favorite food is soul food? Not like two people. 
How many of you say, my favorite food is Italian? Interesting. My favorite food is Thai. Yes, Thai. How many of you, y'all love Thai too? Love Thai. I think, no, I was, I was just in California and I just had Filipino for the first time. I think Thai may have a runner-up, all right? Last one, last one. Went to college to pursue ministry full-time, is the first one, to be a pastor, um, to be an engineer, or to be a physical therapist, all right? Pastor, how many of you think I went to school to be a pastor? Man, I don't know what that says about me. I don't know. How many of you think I went to be an engineer? How many of you think I went to be a physical therapist? Physical therapist. I'm not a physical therapist, but, you know, that's what I went for. Now, here's why I do that. Like, what I just did with you is just totally unfair, right? It's kind of fun, but unfair, right? You don't know me. I don't know you, but... But I gave you a chance to make a quick judgment, like a quick decision about who you think I might be, what do you think I might like. And I think the truth of the matter is that we do that often. Sometimes uh, we do it unknowingly, and, and sometimes we do it at the expense of someone else, right? So what we call stereotypes, right? These quick judgments that we make about people. Uh, a few years ago, I had the uh, opportunity to hear a concept of a TED talk that was taught by a novelist, a Nigerian novelist by the name of Chimamande Adichie. And, and what she said really resonated with me. She shared how as a young girl growing up in Nigeria that she, uh, she found herself loving to, to read and loving to write and, and uh, also she found herself living in this tension of, of stereotypes, right, where, where people assume certain things about her. Right? They assumed because she was from Nigeria that she was poor and that she was uneducated. When the reality was her, her family was actually upper middle class and, and she, her family was extremely educated. They, she moved to the U.S. and uh, started going to a college much like this one. And uh, there was the assumption of her roommate that she listened to tribal music when the reality was she loved Mariah Carey. Y'all don't hold that against her, but, you know, she loved Mariah Carey. And so she lived out this, this challenge of, of how, how do I live in this tension of what people think about me and who I really am. And, and part of my uh, personal passion in life is really this intersection of faith and diversity, this intersection of, of God reaching all people and the challenge in our world that we often try to exclude. And so... Um, one of the things that she said that I think is really powerful, she says that the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, but they are incomplete. They make one story become the only story. I think that's true. That sometimes stereotypes, is not that they're untrue, but it's the fact that we make one story the only story. Now, I know your theme for the semester during chapel has been his story, my story, and our story. And so I want to bring your attention this morning to the fact that there is actually a danger of a single, a single story. That single story that prevents us from hearing and understanding someone else's whole story. 
And Aditya illuminates the danger of a single story in another way when she says this. She says, show a people as one thing, as only one thing, over and over again, and that is what they become. I must admit, like doing this work for over 20 years, I still find myself having to resist the temptation of having a single story about someone else. It, it takes work to learn that, that there are many layers of stories that make up someone's overarching story. Even in our denomination here in North America, uh, we have mostly white churches, uh, about 1,700 churches. About 140 of those are Hispanic. About 50 of those are black and African-American. About 40 are Asian. Uh, about 12 are native. And we have about 75 that are multi-ethnic. I was just in L.A., just flew in this morning, and was spending time with our Asian leaders in L.A. and San Diego, and preached for the first time at a Filipino church yesterday. And, and what was so powerful about the experience was how similar it was to my own, but at the same time, how different it was simultaneously. We have so much in common, but our differences are important as well. So as I'm traveling around the world, uh, I'm, I'm constantly asking the question, what, what does uh, Scripture teach us about being countercultural, about uh, setting a new standard when it comes to reaching and loving all people? What does, what does Jesus model that we can learn from in our modern context uh, today? And I believe what I want to share with you this morning is really simple, but it's, it, it may be one, uh, uh, one of the first steps you can take in, in this journey. And the first thing I want you to know is that if you're like me and you struggle with this at times, you're not alone. As a matter of fact, in Scripture, we find this in Luke chapter 15, uh, verses 1 and 2. It says this, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law murdered. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, in Luke 15... Uh, most of us know that there are several parables that follow, um, talking about three lost things, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son, which is my personal favorite, maybe because it's so much like my own story. But what we don't always think about is why, why would Jesus spend so much time telling parables about, about lost things? Uh, maybe it's because the religious leaders that, that are referenced here had a single story of these people. Uh, they, they were seen through the eyes of their occupation. Maybe they were even seen through the eyes of their sin. How, how, do people, how do people see you? How do you see others? Do, do you see people through the mistakes they've made? Do, do you see people through their skin color, through their religion, through their sexual orientation, or maybe, maybe even their political affiliation? How do you see people. If, if you can only see the surface, I would venture to say there is the danger of a single story. If I were just to take a snapshot of a semester of your time here at IWU, and I was to say from that semester who you are, what would I have to say? The reality is that semester, although extremely important, maybe even four years if you're a senior, although extremely important, is still incomplete when it comes to your overarching story. There's so much more to you than just four years. There's so much more to you than just a semester. There's so much more to you than your ethnicity, your race, so much more to you than your gender or your, your uh, future occupation. There's so much more. There is the danger of understanding the more. 
if we don't take the time. So here's what I've learned as I've, I've been doing this. Oftentimes people uh, kind of label you, and sometimes I get labeled the diversity guy. <laughs> you know, I get labeled that guy that's going to talk about diversity. For a long time, I was labeled the youth guy. You know, he just, he just talks to young people, right? Give him middle schoolers and high schoolers. That's all he does, right? But here's what I've learned. This is not a diversity issue. This is really a discipleship issue. What, what we see in Scripture about the great commission that, that God uh, gives to the disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, is really a discipleship issue. When you, when you look at Acts 1-8 and he talks about going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the most parts of the world, it's really a discipleship issue. That if, if the disciples don't get the fact that they're there to reach all people, all types of people, then they've missed the reality of what Jesus is getting at here. There's some startling statistics I want to throw at you just from an ethnicity standpoint. Today, over a little over 86% of our evangelical churches in North America failed to have 20% diversity and they're mono-ethnic or homogeneous. Our churches are 10% more segregated than our neighborhoods, 20% more segregated than our schools, and this statistic has changed since I, I took these notes. It's now over 80% is noted that over 80% of our closest relationships are typically with people who are like us, right? So the question becomes, if I'm only hanging out with people who are like me, who look like me, who act like me, who are in the same socioeconomic level as me, same ethnicity as me, then I, I, I may miss the possibility of hearing the beauty of other stories, the beauty of stories that may be radically different than mine that hopefully as I learn about them, they may reshape how I see the world. So what could this mean? Could it be possible in this generation that the church may have lost its credibility and may have lost its witness as it preaches about love for all people from segregated pulpits and from segregated pews? So why, why are these parables so important? Why are these two verses so critical in understanding the danger of a single story? We have to remember why parables are even told, right? There are really three uh, major reasons. One, a parable is told uh, to people so that they can relate to in, in order that they might help them to understand something they don't yet understand. So it basically becomes a vehicle of revelation. The second thing is, is something that is, the, the word parable literally means to throw alongside of. So it's thrown alongside of something else to illustrate or to clarify a deeper meaning and truth. But then the third one is something that I want to lift up today is they're typically told at a moment of crisis. They're there to help to resolve or make sense of a conflict. Uh, and some would even say they're there to veil the truth from those who don't care. So, so what's the conflict here, right? Jesus, Jesus is talking about the kingdom. Uh, Jesus is, is ministering to people about the work of the kingdom. And as he's doing that, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, dare I say, the people who are, who are running uh, the church of, of that day, they have questions for Jesus. And so Jesus, the first part of the conflict is Jesus is eating with sinners. He's eating with tax collectors. In other words, Jesus is eating with those, those people. Then the second thing is Jesus is also breaking the cultural rules associated with table fellowship in his culture. Table fellowship was extremely important in Jesus's culture. 
I'll, I'll describe a little bit more about why, but it was extremely important. And he, he's breaking the rules associated with table fellowship. Now, it's almost em- embarrassing, actually, the, the simplicity of what I'm trying to communicate in 30 minutes this morning. It's, it's pretty simplistic, but, but walk with me through this. Could it be possible that Jesus did more at a dinner table Jesus did it more with table fellowship than he ever did at a synagogue or a temple. Could it be possible that when Jesus sat down with people and he ate with them, he turned the culture upside down? He turned the view of people upside down. And the religious leaders of his day saw what he was doing, and they got upset. They saw what he was doing, and they began to ridicule him. They began to, to chastise him. They began to say, wait, either, either he doesn't understand the culture, either he doesn't understand our rules, or he just doesn't get it at all. And Jesus says, no, the truth is, you don't get it. You don't get that table fellowship. What I've come to do What I've come to do is make room for people at the table. See, in your economy, there's no room for certain people at your table. But in God's economy, he makes room for anyone who would come and dine and sit with him. So my question to you, I know this sounds simple. Could it be possible that in Marion, Indiana, in a place like Indiana Wesleyan University, that you could turn the world upside down simply by how you manage your table. Could it be possible that if you and I are serious, intentional, challenging about who's at our table and who, whose table we are invited to that we, we actually go and sit with others. Could it be that what Jesus is demonstrating through table fellowship, through this cultural upheaval, that we could turn the world upside down at a table? Somebody shout table. Now, I know I'm Wesleyan now, but I ain't always been Wesleyan. I, I got a little Baptocostal tendencies that come out every now and then, but somebody shout table. You can change the world by what happens at your table. Now, here's the reality. Here's the reality. I, I grew up in a very diverse area. My, my parents, of course, were African-American, um, and my dad is a pastor. My mom was uh, a minister, too. She was bivocational, so was he. But here's the thing. I never remember a white person sitting at our table. I don't remember. If they did, I don't remember. Uh, we, we had uh, uh, Native Americans, we had Lumbees that lived right next to us in terms of uh, the county was over, over 60% Native, but I never remember a Native person sitting at my dinner table. I don't remember. I, I don't remember a Hispanic person. I don't remember an Asian person. I don't remember anybody that wasn't African American sitting at my dinner table. And it's something, something about our tables that are intimate, that are important, that are valuable to us. And and in a setting like this, the dinner table takes on a different form because here you don't have your personal dinner table as you would at home. You you have a a cafeteria and you have other settings, but here's what I'm getting at. What are are the places in your life that are most important to you? 
What are the places in your life where you build relationships, where you grow and you learn about other people? And what I would suggest to you that what Jesus is getting at is that you can understand the power of managing that table with intentionality of hearing other people's stories. So much so that they begin to reshape how you see the world. They begin to reshape how you see ministry. They begin to reshape how you see life. Then there's the possibility that you might be able to change the world and turn the world upside down. Just at the table. I know we want to talk about church because, see, sometimes I think we've gotten it backwards. I got it backwards for a long time because I thought it was all about the church, right? It was about the messages. It was about the worship. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with with, uh, 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 very good messages. There's nothing wrong with powerful worship. But what I'm I'm getting at is sometimes we, we expect everything to happen at church when maybe Jesus is teaching us that some things need to happen at your table. Oh, not, 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 not the song you're going to sing, but who are you sitting with? Who are you eating with? Who are you learning from? Who, whose house are you willing to go into to just sit at their table and learn their culture? I, I believe part of our challenge right now in our nation is we have a danger of a single t- story because we're sitting at the table with too many people who are like us. And so when other people and and cultures and and nations come on the scene and there's conflict, we have a single story. And so we assume certain things about them. Why? Because we haven't had the opportunity of sitting at their table. Jesus tells these three parables because he knew these guys weren't sitting at the table. All they saw was their sin. All they saw was their occupation. And Jesus said there's so much more to their story. (laughs) There's so much more that I want to reveal. That's a good place for amen right there. So from Ferguson to Baltimore to Oakland, communities are voicing their concern. From, From a University of Missouri to Boston College to Princeton, students are standing up against injustice. I just spoke at a a local college last week at their chapel, and and they had just had a racial incident, and part of of what we were there to do is help them heal and help them grow and help them to learn from it. Why? Because what was happening in the racial conflict on campus is there were not enough people who were sitting at each other's table. And so the conflict arose because people didn't trust each other. The conflict arose because there were assumptions and stereotypes that people were seeing and living out. I was just in the L.A. area where, uh, right outside of uh, San Bernardino, where, where uh, the, the shooting just happened this past week. And some of our churches were struggling with whether they should stay open because of the fear. See, see sometimes fear can paralyze us. They were afraid. They had every right to be. But I believe there's something powerful about the table that creates freedom. When there's freedom, there's no room for fear. The Bible says that perfect love casts out all fear. And it could happen at a table. What's your table look like? What will your table look like the rest of this week? What will your table look like when you go home for break? What will your table look like when you come back? Are you, are you satisfied? Is it okay for you to just sit with people who are like you and think like you? And, or will you take the risk, be courageous enough to do what Jesus did? He sat with people that weren't like him. 
Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from who? All this is from who? All this is from who? God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of what? Reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. Did you hear that? Not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. The church, believers. And he says in verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, those people were important in Jesus' culture. Those people, if you understand table fellowship in, in this text, those people in, in many situations were tax collectors. They were prostitutes. They were sinners. They were lepers. They were sick. Uh, so in some occasions, they were children or they were women. They were always those people. In our day, we have those people too. Maybe for you, those people are uh, people who are Muslim. Maybe for you, those people are people who are Democrats. Maybe for you, those people are people who are gay or lesbian. Maybe for you, those people are black or Hispanic or whatever. Whatever it is, all of us have those people. Maybe for you, those people are people who cut you off in traffic. Y'all ain't saying amen. Maybe for you, those people are people who uh, who celebrate when the University of Michigan wins a game. Ah, are y'all with me? Those people, all of us have those people. But then the question becomes, Jesus, what are you doing? What are you doing with this whole thing of table fellowship? Isn't it amazing that the religious leaders of Jesus' day spent more time avoiding the very people Jesus spent most of his time engaging? I'm going to say that again because I think it's pretty important. Isn't it amazing that the religious leaders of Jesus' day spent more time avoiding the very people Jesus spent most of his time engaging? Is that my story? This is convicting. I'm, I'm talking to me now. It's convicting sometimes when I look at the course of my week and who I'm spending time with. Am I spending time mostly with the church? church leaders and pastors, my small group, um, serving our youth ministry at our church and our leaders there? Or am I sitting with people who are outside the church, who are far from God, who are the ostracized, the forgotten, the broken? Jesus seems to be spending more time with them than with anyone else outside of his disciples. He seems to see that as his harvest field, that as his mission field. What do you see? Where are you spending your time? And could it be possible? This is not that deep. It's not that deep. Could it be possible that all you need to do, like, like you don't have to go to, to Nigeria, you don't have to go to Australia, although that's important. I'm not saying you should be a missionary or whatever. But, but what, if, what if all you have to do is change your table. <laughs> what, what, if, what if this is it? Like, what, what if that's the start? And you allow what happens at your table to reshape everything. 
I'm challenging my family to do that every day. Sometimes we get it right. Sometimes we mess it up. Like, like we were eating, uh, I introduced them to Ethiopian recently. And, um, you know, if you ever eat in Ethiopian, you eat with your hands. And they put it all on this one large dish. And, uh, and, and my kids, like my youngest are eight, uh, four, and, uh, and nine months. So it was really my, my eight and my four-year-old. And they looked at the food and they were like, what's that? <laughs> we in somebody else's house. Oh, don't mind them. They, what's that? It ain't easy changing the table. <laughs> but they've learned to love Ethiopian. They've learned even the restaurant that we go to now. I took Evan, who, who rode with me to uh, here. He's in, in Indianapolis with me now. We, I took him there, and, and, and they've grown to love the owners of the Ethiopian restaurant in our city. And, and every time I refer to the Ethiopian restaurant, my, my four-year-old says, oh, you're talking about our friends. Why? Why? Because the owner of the restaurant taught her how to uh, do her letters in Ethiopian. Why? Because we've learning to sit at a, another table. And, and now when, when we go out and we're in somebody else's home and we're eating, now, now they see it as an adventure to learn something new. It's not about judging what, what they think they should have because of what they're used to, but they're, they're adventurous enough to say, What's, what else is out there that we haven't been exposed to that, that maybe we can learn from? Maybe we can, we can prepare it at home. Why? Because they're sitting at somebody else's table. What are, you, what are you doing at your table? Francis of Assisi says it this way. He says, no use to walk anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. Here are a few things about table fellowship that I think are important, and I'm going to close this thing out. Table fellowship was created in Jewish culture, one, to recognize who was family, right? Who ate at the table established boundaries of who was in, who was out. It was, it was there to frame personal and cultural boundaries, right? The hierarchy, status, gender, uh, through seating arrangements. Maybe that's why even the disciples, when they're, they're trying to figure out who's going to be in charge and who's going to be better than the other, they, they, they start talking about who's going to be at the right hand, right? It wasn't just the issue of, of kind of this, this kingdom uh, mentality, but it was also an understanding of, of table fellowship, that whoever sat at the right hand was the person of highest honor at the table. Table, table fellowship. It's there to perpetuate social values. And lastly, as I said, it's there to gain honor. So Jesus understood what it meant socially to sit down and eat a meal with someone. Therefore, when he chose to eat with someone that was of a, a, a part of an underclass or considered to be those people, he knew he was crossing a social boundary in order to meet a spiritual need. Love must transcend likeness. Purpose must transcend our preferences, and courage must trump our comfort. So here are three things I want to give you. At the table, Jesus re redefined who was family. You see in Luke 19, Zacchaeus' story, where they were calling him a sinner and casting him aside. And Jesus says to him, no, because you're willing to sit at my table, you are a son of Abraham. He redefines who's family at the table. One of the things that we've been forced to do because we've had to leave family on numerous occasions to move because of ministry, we've had to have kind of a surrogate family, a new family. And at that, at that table, a family for us now are, are Hispanic, are Asian, are, are white, are, 
are black and African-American. Why? Because we've had to, we've been forced to create a new family because family's not with us anymore. You have to learn. And at the table, at the table, you redefine who's family. The second thing that Jesus does at the table, he, he challenged the social and religious exclusion. In other words, those sensibilities that the religious leaders had of, of who should be uh, the focus of their attention, Jesus, Jesus says, no, nah, the first shall be last. The last shall be first at my table. <laughs> and, and at my table, we don't exclude people at my table. Matter of fact, we invite them in and, and we give them high honor at, at my table. At my table, the greatest among you at my table, Jesus said, at my table, the greatest among you will not be the one who's getting honor. The greatest will be the servant at, at my table. My table is different than the world's table. And then lastly, at the table, Jesus refused to perpetuate religious traditions and regulations that did not value people. If what you do is more important than people, the people that God loves, the people that God values. It has become an idol. If we're honest, sometimes I see these Facebook banters back and forth, and I don't get involved in them. Sometimes I'm just watching, and I'm like, ah. Sometimes our politics have become more important than people. Sometimes I've been at churches, even my own church, where a program or an event was more important than people. And when those things, those religious traditions or things that we value get elevated to where they're more important than God's people, we have made that thing in our lives an idol. And God is a jealous God. So here are a couple things I want you to wrestle with, and I'm going to tell you the story and I'll be done. Questions to consider. What is... Your single story of a group or people or a person. Can you be honest about that? And then secondly, the question is, are you willing to do what it takes to learn more of their story and possibly be reshaped by their experience and not just your own? Quick story. Um, five years ago, we moved to Grand Rapids. Pastor Mike, who was one of our pastors there, um, invited us out to boat. And um, I don't do a lot of boating. I know y'all thinking the stereotypes, right? Does he swim? You know, it's okay. I know there's that nervous laughter. I know, I know. It's okay. It's all right. It's all right. But we get invited out of boating. We go, the whole family goes. And, um, and we get out there and he's pulling my kids and they're having a blast. And I'm like, man, I'm a youth pastor, right? I'm adventurous. I'm a daredevil. I want to get on the tube. So I'm like, can I, can I get back there? Absolutely. So he throws this big thing, mega ball, on back, back of the boat, starts pulling it. And, uh, and I get out there, and I'm having a great time. I'm riding. I'm like waving at people at Green Lake, you know, like, hey, what's up, y'all? You know, having a good time, doing my thing. And then all of a sudden, Pastor Mike speeds up. And I'm like, quit playing, boy. What you doing? And then Pastor Mike makes this turn. And I fly through the air, land in the water. I'm like, is he trying to throw me out of, he speeds up again. 
And Pastor Mike gives that little red boat everything he's got. He turns, and my grip gets tight, knuckles are white, and he throws me, and I'm coming out, and I'm flying out of the mega bowl, and I hit the water. Now, what I failed to tell Pastor Mike was that I could kind of (laughs) swim. And I'm used to swimming in pools, not really in lakes. I had this little bit of a fear of lakes because I watched one of my best friend's father drown when I was about nine years old. I didn't tell Pastor Mike that. And so now I'm like going under the water and I'm starting to fight the water and the boat zooms off. I know they're not going to get back to me in time. And then all of a sudden as I'm fighting water, taking in what I'm thinking, God, don't let me die out here in front of my kids. All of a sudden I hear something say, be still. I forgot I had a life jacket on. (laughs) I start to rise to the top. I'm like, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Here's the thing. If you do this work, if you work at the table, there are going to be times where it feels like you're drowning in other people's opinions, where you're drowning in the discomfort, where you're drowning in the, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do, I don't know if this is appropriate, I, I don't know. You get, God says, be still. If you're at my table, doing what I've called you to do, I'll give you everything you need. Just be still and know that he's God. And resist the temptation of the danger of a single story. Amen? Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. God, I know these students have a passion for you and have a passion for what is right, what is good. And God, I know this challenging as we talk about the single story issues of diversity, of racial reconciliation, of differences, of orientation, of political affiliation, of, of, of religion that's in our society, different nations and different views. But God, I pray that you would give them the grace, give them the strength, give them the wisdom, give them the power to see past the single story and see the whole story that you are writing about the other people's lives around them. Use them, Father, in Marion. Use them at their homes, wherever they're from. Use them to turn this world upside down for you. It's in the matchless name of Jesus we pray. Let everybody say amen. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.